Chapter Fifteen of *The Man with the Black Cord* by Augusta Groner, translated by Grace Isabel Cobron. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On the Eve of Action, one beautiful moonlit October evening, brilliant with the clear atmosphere of late autumn, a jolly company sat together at the supper table in the Plone House. The guests who had been together at that hospitable board so often were all there again. Bauer and Gebhardt, Maximoff and Hartmann. The doctor had returned two days before, but Hartmann did not reach Inzersdorf until that very afternoon. During the early part of the meal, Maximoff gave a witty account of how he had discovered on his journey to his home country that he had grown completely out of touch with the habits and customs there, that even the food did not taste the same to him. As he intended to spend the rest of his life in Austria, he was glad to recognize that he had become such a thoroughly good Austrian. He also told them that he was sending Mrs. Schober and Sonia to Vienna the following day to have the little girl fitted for a coat made from some valuable sealskins he had brought with him. The latter half of the supper was devoted to a report by Hartmann of the robbery in his house and the damage done there. The Polish landowner had recovered from the depressing effect of his loss and was ready to look at the matter from the humorous side, more especially as he had recovered most of the really valuable property that had been taken and since they found the robber began gephardt slowly and bauer who seemed greatly interested interrupted and finished the sentence himself then there's nothing more to be done in the matter no replied mr hartman there's nothing more to be done in the matter it's all quite clear now absolutely clear he said the words very slowly and very thoughtfully there was a sad gravity in his eyes for which the amusing account he had just given did not supply the motive in any way these sad, dark eyes rested quietly on the charming group of Suzanne and Maximoff. The man was bending gracefully forward as the girl turned the soft oval of her cheek up to him, and he fastened an earring into the delicately tinted lobe of her ear. They were a pair of unusually shaped ornaments which Maximoff had brought his betrothed as a reminder of his Russian journey. One of the earrings would not stay closed, which was the reason of the doctor's present occupation with it. Mueller's eyes, dimmed and darkened by the thoughts within as he looked at the attractive couple, suddenly grew sharp and keen and focused immediately on the ornament in Suzanne's ear. He realized first that he had seen these earrings in Maximoff's cabinet of curiosities and wondered that Suzanne had not seen them too. They were a rather peculiar setting, the French fleur-de-lis in diamonds hanging from a single jewel of considerable size which was inserted in the ear. He knew, of course, that Maximoff had not been to Russia, but that he was obliged to make those around him believe that he had taken the journey. This first little deception about the earrings was clear to Mueller, but under it was a dim memory of something else connected with the jewel. Suddenly he knew what it was, and the quick vibration of every nerve through Mueller's frame translated itself into such a violent movement of Mr. Hartman's left hand that he had almost upset his wine-glass. Fortunately, only almost— otherwise the claret in the glass would have made an ugly stain on the snowy cloth. The hand lay quiet on the table now, and the fingers, which had been drawn together as if in a cramp, slowly straightened themselves out again. "'You are not well?' asked Mrs. Plone gently and sympathetically, so that he alone could hear. "'Or have you lost more than you are willing to tell us?' Mr. Hartman bowed his thanks to the gentle hostess and replied, "'No, that is not it, kind friend. But it was a sudden shock, a painful surprise.' that upset me for a moment. "'Why, how strange,' said the lady. "'A painful surprise? Here? Now?' 
Mr. Hartman drew her hand gallantly to his lips. Don't let us speak of it, he pleaded. Some little incident, unimportant in itself, will often bring up a painful memory. I need not assure you that whatever I said a moment back had nothing whatever to do with— Hartman stopped as if seeking for words to finish his sentence, and turned his attention rather too markedly to the dish of fruit handed him at this moment by the maid. "'Oh, how beautiful!' he exclaimed. "'What a charming arrangement of form and color. It took him some time to sufficiently admire the attractive dish and to choose what he wanted himself. This enabled him to forget to finish his sentence. "'Then you too are nervous sometimes,' said Plone, who sat at his other side. "'Even you cannot always control your feelings. I thought you one of the most perfectly poised natures I have ever met.' "'I'm afraid you overestimate me,' returned Hartman, smiling. "'Although, of course, you could not know the struggles I have had to learn outer composure, at least.' "'Only outer composure? Then you are upset sometimes, even if you have learned how to conceal it. Then your soul can lose its poise?' It was Maximoff who spoke now. He looked into Hartman's eyes with kindly interest as he continued. "'It is as psychiatrist that I ask, and also as such, that I would really like to know what excited you a moment back, for I know it could not have been a petty or unimportant matter.' "'No, it was not a petty nor an unimportant matter,' replied Hartman, and his eyes again deepened by melancholy gravity rested sadly on the doctor's handsome face. "'The thing that suddenly came to my mind that so upset me concerns the downfall of a human destiny. You are a psychiatrist. I can well believe that you would find my mental trouble of a few moments back interesting as a study. If you wish, we can talk it over tomorrow. Will it be convenient to you if I come at eleven o'clock?' I have important business to attend to later. Oh, please come, surely, said Maximoff. I am glad to see you at any hour. Then he is to know the secret, pouted Suzanne. But we aren't worthy of it. I don't think that's nice of you. You'll hear it later, Miss Plone, replied Hartman, but not now. It's too long and sad a story to tell at such a time. The girl's eyes met his as he spoke. Suddenly the smile on her lips faded, and her eyes widened while she gazed as if hypnotized into the intelligent, keen gray eyes of the man who had spoken. A shudder ran down her spine. All unconsciously something in her heart asked the question which his eyes feared to answer, and he turned away. Suzanne shivered, then laughed a forced laugh, and made some indifferent remark. No one had noticed the little scene, but Mueller was startled to his very heart by it. It was as if his thoughts had taken visible form and shape in his eyes and this sensitive woman's soul had seen the picture, the doom that would so terribly change her own life. Mrs. Plone rose from the table, and her guests followed her example. Still under the impression made by the conversation of a moment or two before, the company bowed to one another silently, as if not in the mood for the usual spoken greetings which are a pleasant habit of the close of a meal in all Teutonic countries. One person alone, Bauer, not quite fine-feeling enough to recognize the mood of the others, broke the little pause with a loud, harsh, Propst malzeit. Then something happened which gave a second and more severe surprise to the little gathering. Mr. Hartman lost control of his nerves again, and this time Bauer's remark was the cause of it. The bookkeeper was in the habit of joining in the usual Austrian expression used on such occasions, but once in a very great while, and this happened to be one of the times, he would affect the traveled man and use the North German Propst malzeit. Hartman wheeled around as he heard it, stared right in Bauer's face, and then gave a loud, short laugh. It was a laugh full of scorn, and the glance of Hartman's eyes, which seemed to run the bookkeeper through and through, 
was equally scornful. The two ladies were startled out of their usual composure by this astonishing impoliteness on the part of their polished and considerate guest. Gebhardt shook his head, and Plone and Maximoff exchanged surprised glances. Bauer flushed and moved a step forward towards the man whose laugh has sounded like a deliberate insult. "'What do you mean?' he said in a tone that was like a hiss of anger. Then Hartman laughed again, but this time quite naturally and cheerily as he replied, "'One who knows had to laugh at your propes mozart.' The others exchanged glances again. They would have begun to doubt Hartman's sanity had not Bauer's changing expression proved that he at least understood the sense of these incomprehensible words. The bookkeeper's angry surprise had given way to a start of embarrassment. His face was deadly pale, his lips drawn back, and he looked as he wished the ground would open and swallow him up. "'Well, you needn't lose your head about it completely,' said Hartman, with a somewhat forced gaiety. "'We can talk over the matter in all calmness tomorrow morning. You'll honour me with a visit to my charming retreat, will you not?' Then turning to the others, he continued easily, "'Dear friends, you will forgive me if I leave you now. My nerves seem to be quite out of my control tonight, and I think it will be better for me to retire and get a good sleep.' I will be no loss to you, the way I am feeling now. He bowed again and left the room. A few moments later he locked himself in his pavilion, and without turning up the light, walked to the window and stood looking out on the moonlit moor beyond. I'm glad to hear that Sonia and Mrs. Schober will be in the city tomorrow, he murmured. I believe I have a fever tonight. My pulse is beating at an unnatural rate. It's the same old story. No matter how old I grow, I cannot control my excitement at this stage of the game and this case, this case. But I want to hear from his own lips the truth about his own condition, and therefore I must be calmer and more clear-headed than ever to-morrow. It is not only that my success will be in doubt, but my very life will be in danger if I do not play my part well. About noon to-morrow, my life will be hanging on a thread. There isn't an insurance company in the world that would take the risk if they knew the particulars. But even at this price, there is nothing in the whole world that would compensate me for the loss of that hour that is to come. It will be the most interesting experience of my life. And he lets her wear those earrings. When I suddenly realized where they came from, it upset me completely. I must be growing old to lose my grip on myself like that. And then this propst mausite. Such a ridiculous, such a silly affair as that other is. But it was just the straw that broke the camel's back. I don't know what those dear people will think of me. Well, we'll get through somehow till tomorrow and tomorrow the bomb will burst. Tomorrow. And those enormous footprints that I saw down there by the gate? They have added another sensation to this case. Every day I ask myself why he does not kill Mr. Hartman, for he must have recognized the latter as his enemy. That is the biggest riddle of all. I hope that tomorrow I will find the solution for it also. Provided I am alive tomorrow, that is, for it's not at all certain. My conduct was foolish tonight under the circumstances. Why, I directly challenged the man to end it all himself. It would be easy enough to put a bomb under this little house here. Still, the man's recklessness and audacity are so great that it probably affords him the keenest pleasure to play with me as a cat plays with a mouse. No, on second thoughts, I doubt if my sleep will be disturbed tonight. All these thoughts passed through the old detective's mind as his eyes wandered over the dreary sweep of the black moor to which the moonlight gave a veiled charm it did not possess by day. Mueller's pulses beat hastily, the blood throbbed at his temples, but his inmost soul was calm, and the brain behind the quiet gray eyes was keen as steel. Suddenly he started back from the window, 
for he had just heard the sound of a footfall outside. Someone was walking about the pavilion inside the wall. Mueller listened for a moment, then crept out of the room and opened the front door softly. He slipped down the steps unseen and hid himself behind the bush that stood at the foot of the stairs. But he had scarcely found his position before he left it again and came out into the moonlight, saying with a light laugh, "'Oh, it's you, is it? Then you couldn't wait till tomorrow? You absolutely had to know today how I found out your secret?' The man who stood before him was Bauer, the moonlight lying full on his pale, ugly face which was less repulsive than usual because it bore so clearly an expression of fear and shame. The soft heart of the old detective awoke again. Poor soul, what a petty coward it is, anyway, he thought to himself. Then he said aloud with a calm, severe voice, But you are quite mistaken if you think that I intend to answer any questions of yours. It will be quite the other way around. I, I am ready for anything you wish, stammered Bauer. I will answer any questions and give any satisfaction that may be demanded of me. Mueller smiled scornfully. All that is demanded of you is that you make a humble apology, a written apology, stating that you were the sender of the two stupid and malicious anonymous letters received by Lieutenant Erlock. If you do this, I'll promise you that the affair is closed forever. I'll, I'll do it, stammered the poor coward again, and Mueller answered, Very well, then, and now you can go home and go to sleep. He turned towards his own door again, but Bauer threw out a hand to stop him. "'Well, what more do you want?' grumbled the detective. "'Will, will Nellie Cornelia read my letter?' gasped the bookkeeper, his face flushed. "'Miss von Feldern, you mean?' corrected Mueller. "'Miss von Feldern,' repeated Bauer obediently, "'who now, I hope, will never be annoyed again by your poems and flowers.' "'Never again,' declared Bauer, hanging his head. He looked so entirely repentant and miserable that Mueller's anger was lost in pity. "'You know Lieutenant Erlock personally, do you not?' asked the detective. Bauer nodded, and Mueller continued. "'And you didn't realize that you could have no possible chance to supplant him in the affections of the lady?' "'Miss Bonfelburn did not know from whom the letters and flowers came.' "'But you knew her personally?' "'Yes, I met her in my mother's house. Did she ever notice you particularly?' The amorous bookkeeper sighed deeply as only answer. "'There, you see,' said the other more good-naturedly, "'when a man knows that the lady has no interest in him whatever, then if he is a man he will not annoy her with his attentions and only make himself ridiculous by doing so. And above all it is an unmanly thing to play an ugly trick on the more fortunate one who has honestly and fairly won the lady's heart. There, that's all I have to say. Is there anything more that occurs to you?' why mr hartman i would like to know how you oh how i recognized you as the writer of those wretched letters well i'll allow you to suppose that i know lieutenant erlock that he showed me the letters that i suggested jealousy as a motive for writing them furthermore that miss von feldern was questioned and told us that some unknown admirer sent her poems and flowers while she was living in the country also that her landlady there had a son who appears to have been something like you Furthermore, you may also suppose that Mr. Plone happened one day to mention that you are a poet in secret, and that you send flowers to a lady whose name he does not know. I scarcely noticed what he told me about you, for my head was full of a more important matter, besides which your name is Bauer, and the mother of the man Miss Van Feldern mentioned is a Mrs. Van Probst. Was, interrupted the bookkeeper, my mother has been dead for nearly two years now. Mr. Van Probst was her second husband. Oh, indeed. Now it was Mueller's turn to blush hotly as he realized that he had been caught in a bit of carelessness. 
he should have known long ago that Bauer was the writer of those two letters. A few simple questions or one look at the police records would have told him what he wanted to know. Of course, from the very beginning, he had treated the matter of the letters as of little importance, and it had had nothing whatever to do with his coming to Inzersdorf. But it was a mistake on his part to forget any detail that might in any way be connected with the principal matter in hand. Mueller was very much dissatisfied with himself, and whenever this happened he was always extremely considerate of others. He laid his hand now on Bower's arm, and spoke in a tone of fatherly kindness. "'We are all liable to err,' he said, "'but try not to let yourself be dragged into any such meanness again. A repentant apology will make good what you have done. That is all that any one can demand of you. But do not be offended if I warn you that you will not gain your own respect.' nor any inward peace if you go on in this way. And self-respect is what every man needs who would be a man worthy the name. Oh, one thing more. Why did you run away that night, you know, when you had the headache several days ago? I, I thought it was Erlock in the parlor. I could only see his shoulder, his arm and back. It was the same uniform. Oh, said Mueller, very well then. Now good night, I am very sleepy. Remember what I have told you. You will find it is for your own good. Bower stood motionless, his head drooping, his arms at his side. He looked very unhappy. When he realized that Mueller was no longer speaking, he raised his head heavily and with difficulty and looked at the older man with dim eyes. "'Well, won't you give me your hand for good night?' Mueller's tone was quite gentle and friendly. Bower started, stretched out both hands, and a sob wrung itself up out of his heart. Mueller's eyes were dim in sympathy and for quite some little time he endured the heavy pressure of the bookkeeper's strong hand. Finally, he said, with his usual great good nature, "'Hadn't you better go now? I think one thumb is gone. And besides, you know we really can't stand here all night like a couple of women, saying good-bye after a coffee party.' Bower dropped the other's hand. "'Oh, how, how kind you are,' he stammered. "'You are so gentle with me. You even give me your hand. You don't think I am quite impossible. I thank you, oh, I thank you for what you have done.' Oh, come, come, what a very romantic-minded person you are. Bower set his teeth hard and spoke haltingly, but more as if trying to hold back the words than as if forcing them out. If only any human being in all the world had ever really loved me, then I wouldn't be so filled up with envy and hatred and bitterness and malice. Even my own mother never loved me. She was always cold and hard and perfectly pitiless towards the very faults that I had inherited from her, and the rest of the world paid no attention to me or if they did, it was only to laugh at me. Oh, no, you are mistaken, interrupted Mueller. Have I not seen every day now how kind the plones are to you, and how they appreciate your good qualities? Yes, yes, that is really true, murmured Bower, and his face brightened as if he had made a pleasant discovery. Then he asked another question. But how did you ever recognize me from just from the Probst Malzite? That's not so astonishing, replied Mueller with a smile. We use the phrase very little in this part of the country, and it just so happened that I haven't heard it since I saw it in your letters. Then I suddenly recollected, and although the name was still wrong, I remembered the signature of your letter, and your fright showed me that my conclusions were justified. But don't let us talk about it any more, and don't look so unhappy. You realize that the plones are fond of you. Is it not a good deal when kind, intelligent people such as they are think well of you? But you'd better go now. They might notice your long absence." Tomorrow they will see that the little difficulty between us is quite settled. I give you my word no one will ever know what the reason for this little difference was. Oh, and please remember that no one here must suspect I am acquainted with Lieutenant Erlock. Do you understand? 
You must never give even a hint of it. Bower looked at him seriously. The peculiarity of this circumstance, that Hartman knew Erlock well enough to have seen the letters, and yet that he had never mentioned the fact of his acquaintance with the young officer in the house of mutual friends, suddenly struck him as odd. He stood silent for a moment, thinking it over. Then a flash came up in his eyes as if he had realized the significance. A question rose to his lips, but he did not dare utter it. He held out his hands again, saying gravely, I will not mention it. Good night. Then he walked slowly back through the moonlit garden to the house. When Mueller returned to his own room and went to bed, his sleep was deep and untroubled. The little diversion from the more strenuous current of his thoughts had done him good. When he awoke the next morning, his pulse was calm and regular. He was in excellent condition, mentally and physically. The maid who brought his breakfast tray at eight o'clock found him standing at the open window, gazing into the sunny morning landscape. In Fanny's opinion, there was nothing particularly inspiring about the black moor, but it seemed to have put Mr. Hartman into the very best of spirits as he came up to the table on which he had just set the abundantly spread tray. "'Why, my dear child,' he laughed, "'you bring me more every day. Do you expect me to eat all that? What would happen to my waistline if I did? You're too kind to me, you and Mistress Cook. It's time I showed my gratitude. Here, this is yours, and take the other to the presiding goddess of our kitchen.' Fanny blushed in pleasure as she took up the two twenty-crown notes that the guest laid on the table. When she had shut the door behind her, Mueller said to himself, "'Well, that's settled. Now I'll put something for Wilhelm under the brush there. When you're going into battle as I am, it's best to arrange these little things beforehand.' Mueller enjoyed his breakfast thoroughly, then packed his trunk and his grip, looking out of the window from time to time as he did so. When everything was in its place and there was nothing more to be done— Mueller could devote himself entirely to the inspection of the surrounding scenery, and it appeared to interest him more than ever that morning. It was nearly ten o'clock when he saw a peddler coming towards him along the street, quite an ordinary peddler, such as might be seen anywhere along the country roads. Mueller's eyes watched this peddler carefully. When the man came along the road to a point right under the window of the pavilion, he stopped, doffed his hat, and said respectfully, can I show the gentleman some cuff buttons or an eyeglass cord? And I have some fine new suspenders, too. Mueller replied that he did not need anything just now, and asked the man how business was these days. Very good, thank you, sir. Everything is in order, and arranged as well as anyone could wish. Mueller seemed pleased to find someone who did not complain of poor business, for he waved a friendly hand to the man before he left the window. As he turned back into the room, he smiled as if content. This former ne'er-do-weel is turning out quite a useful lad, he thought, and he repeated the words with sudden gravity. Everything is in order, and all is arranged. I can leave here in three-quarters of an hour. For a span he stood motionless, lost in his thoughts. Then, seeming to awake again to the exigencies of the present, he walked over to a little table that stood between the windows, and took up three articles that lay there. They were a small but wicked-looking revolver, a little silver whistle, and a small bottle with a very wide mouth. The bottle was closed with a metal cap and contained a clear liquid. Mueller put the revolver in his right coat pocket and hid the whistle in his vest. Before he put the little bottle in its place, he tried its stopper. This was, as has just been said, a metal cap, a rather deep cap for the size of the bottle, and its outer surface was roughened to make it the more easily handled. With a single, scarcely perceptible turn of his fingers, Mueller opened this cap, but he shut it again equally quickly, for in the fleeting instant it was open, 
the sharp fumes that arose with deadly vigor betrayed the fact that the bottle was filled with chloroform when Mueller had assured himself that the cap was in good working order he put the bottle in another coat pocket the pockets of Mueller's coats were all of unusual capacity were lined with leather and had little inner compartments so that heavy objects carried in these pockets could not move about as he walked and attract attention from the outside now that he had equipped himself for the serious business of this day he left his room and went over to the factory he sought out the manager chatted with him a while and asked casually whether plone intended to remain in his office the rest of the morning plone replied in the affirmative while Mueller was in the office bauer entered on some business errand say what was the matter with you two last evening plone asked at once bauer blushed hotly but hartman answered calmly it was a little matter that concerned no one but ourselves mr bauer came to my room last evening and we talked it over and settled it quite satisfactorily this might not have been an explanation but it was a decided hint in protest of further curiosity plone understood but he was not offended for he knew that hartman was saving bauer some embarrassment the bookkeeper's expression of the evening before had plainly shown that whatever it was he was at fault Mueller stayed in the office until quarter to eleven then he bade farewell to the manager and walked down the road to rose cottage he walked slowly his head bowed and at times a deep breath that was almost a sigh welled up from his very heart End of chapter fifteen